May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, we are going to end this message as we did last message with Q&A. So if you have a question that emerges through the content, please do not hesitate to bring that up at the end, and we'll provide some space for that. Last week, we got started with our Jesus Ethics series uh, talking about turn the other cheek and do not resist an evil person. And we had some great illustrations of what some of those teachings might happen to mean. And the reason why this is really important is because when evil is done, When injustice happens in this world, there's two major impulses within our human hearts. The first is to fight, which is the idea of getting vengeance. The second is to flight, which is the idea of you just either remain a doormat or you let people run over you. And sometimes they turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Those have been interpreted to mean such a thing. But we discovered that if you take a look at the culture, the context, the language, what Jesus is actually talking about there is a thing called disciplined nonviolence. To resist an evil person is essentially to oppose it without mirroring it. It doesn't mean to lay there and just take it, but it does mean active opposition to the evil that is happening in this world without mirroring it, without exacerbating it, without causing evil to continue on into this world. So that was last week as we launched into a great start to our Jesus Ethics series. Today, I'd like to share with you a concept or an idea in the Jesus Ethics series called Greater and Lesser. Greater and lesser. And we're going to start by reading a couple passages. We'll start with Matthew chapter 5, and then we'll read Matthew chapter 22 to set our grounding in the teachings of Jesus. So starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter... Not the least stroke of a pin will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. We'll stop our reading there. That parallel passage, by the way, is also in Mark chapter 12, and you can see oftentimes differences or nuances that each gospel writer puts in there with these particular passages. Now, here's a teaching of Jesus that emerges onto the scene that we find in our Gospels. Historically, 
around the third century AD, so a couple centuries after Jesus, there begins to be a written down codification of all of the commandments that are found in the Bible. Now, this is starting to be written down near the second and third centuries, but we start to see hints of it all the way back to the first century context of Jesus when he's teaching these things about the commandments. Now, the reason why that's important to understand the third century is because when it gets written down and listed, the rabbis, the teachers of the Old Testament, come up with a list of 613 commandments found in the Bible. And oftentimes, this is a great quiz question, by the way. If you want to ask somebody, how many commandments are there in the Bible, or at least in the Old Testament, most people are going to say 10, right, because we have the 10 commandments. But that's not entirely accurate if you take a look at how commandments and teachings were laid out, which we're going to get to, starting with the very first one in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, which is the first commandment. So starting with that one, I heard a woohoo on that one. So somebody's really excited about the first, is that the greatest commandment? (laughs) Perhaps. Okay. (laughs) And let's close in prayer. That sounds like a good place to stop right there. So... so, (laughs) Thank you, Marcus. So we have 613 commandments, starting with be fruitful and multiply and going all the way to the end of Malachi. Now, there's some, we could spend a lot of time on this because there's some beautiful pictures and images. For example, some rabbis would talk about how there's 613 seeds in every pomegranate. Now, I don't know if he actually counted, but that's kind of the image, the image of fruitfulness. There's also this idea or concept that came about, which there are 365 negative commandments. These are the thou shalt not or do not do these commandments, um, corresponding with the number of solar days. And then there are 248 positive commandments corresponding to the number of organs in the body. Now, I don't know if this is actually accurate. I'm definitely uh, not in, you know, somebody who knows anything about anatomy. But, um, <laughs> boy, that could be taken a whole bunch of ways. Okay, so anyway... <laughs> We're getting off to a really good start here. So and the, the, <laughs> the idea is 365, that corresponds to the day, is 245, positive. These are the things that you are to do. There's all sorts of rich symbolism that comes into these 613. Now, I imagine for a Christian to hear about 613 commandments, which is the traditional account, it can seem like a little overwhelming. I mean, 10 is already enough for us. So 613, this is a little much. And because of its beauty and because of the commandments being not just things that God is pointing his finger at you to do, but they're actually teachings, they're guides, they're, they're laws, they're precepts, there's things that bring wonderful life. I thought we would go through them each one at a time. So let's start with number one. Uh, the first one. <laughs> so here's the first one. These are actually the first 100. As you can see, it starts with to know that God exists. Now, this particular list that I'm showing you comes from a rabbi called Rambam. His, his other name is also Maimonides. And so he's the guy um, that a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people go to say, here's kind of the official, unofficial list. So it starts with to know that God exists, not to entertain the idea that there is any God but the eternal, not to blaspheme, not to hell. Okay, here's the first hundred. Here's the second hundred. Here's the third hundred. I hope you appreciated the time it took to make these slides. Here's the fourth <laughs> Hundred, you can see that um, there's there's all sorts of different civic laws, execution laws, sexual laws, kosher laws, judgment laws, high priestly ritual laws. Uh, here's four hundred and one to five hundred. Here's five hundred to six hundred, and then here's the thirteen. Now, 
If you get burdened by that number of laws, which can be sometimes overwhelming, may I remind you that in our nation alone, the federal criminal laws that were counted in 1982 were over 3,000. And these are just federal laws. These are not state and local laws. In 2008, they decided to go back and count again. They found over 4,450 laws. And then several years later, they said, we just can't even count because it is growing so much. And so 613 actually is a very conservative number. Now, also take into consideration, a lot of Christians look at the Old Testament and all of those laws and think, man, isn't this a burden? And what are all these laws really for? And aren't they a little old and outdated? Well, perhaps, but if you, again, compare it to how we do our laws, did you know that in California, it's a crime to pickle a spiny lobster? You're not allowed to do that. So we have that law that's on the book. Did you know that in Oklahoma, it is illegal to have a sleeping donkey in your bathtub after 7 p.m.? This is, a le- this is a literal law on the books. And in Baltimore, one of my favorites, it is illegal to take a lion to the movies, which means that all of you violated this law right here. We're taking Narnia. So, so oftentimes when we hear the idea of laws and commandments, we, especially when it comes to the Bible or to religion, there is this impulse within us to say, oh, man, such a burden. But if you think about it from human social terms, they are creating a society in which to live, in which the greatest life that could possibly be lived is guided by these rules, by these commandments, just like we do today. We put in laws on the books to ensure that the best possible kind of life can be followed. And just like maybe some of the laws that we see in the Old Testament maybe don't make sense to us, There are other things that are actually really, really brilliant and just from a historical perspective have actually set the foundation for how we govern today. Let me give you a couple examples of that. Number 150 says not to eat a worm found in fruit. I think that's a pretty darn good law. (laughs) Number 155, there's a law in the Old Testament that says not to eat of the flesh of a beast that is torn. Now, I couldn't show you any pictures because um, this is a law, kosher laws, about the treatment of animals that begins for how you are to eat meat appropriately. And kosher laws are about the humanity that we express to animals just as much as the humanity that we express to ourselves. And when I started searching images, not only ancient ways of eating animals, but modern ways of eating animals, you start to look at these laws and these commandments and you go, maybe some of these laws really aren't so outdated. It's actually very, very disturbing to think about how we prepare some of our animals even to this day. There's a whole series of laws, right in consecutive order, uh, regarding how you are to do business to ensure, number 182, ensure that scales and weights are correct. Now, doesn't that sound like a legitimate, real law that we should have on the books? Number 183, not to possess any inaccurate measures and weights, which is there obviously to help with number 182. 184, not to delay payment of a hired man's wages. Now, again, these are Old Testament laws. But if you consider scales, weights that are correct, I think about the current suit that is against Whole Foods right now. Are these laws really all that outdated and old? It's something that I would like for us to consider. When we hear the word laws, 
when we hear the word commandments, they are there to guide the very best kind of life that we have. Here are some of the justice laws. Not to hear, number 245, not to hear one of the parties to a suit in the absence of the other party. Number 247, not to decide a case on the evidence of a single witness. Doesn't that sound like a pretty decent law, perhaps? Number 251, to treat parties in a litigation with equal impartiality. You mean we have to write that down? Number 253, not to favor a great man when trying a case. Now, I imagine for those of you who are in law or those of you who have paid attention to legal cases historically, some of this stuff would probably actually be really, really great to apply even in our modern day. One of my favorite sets of laws, number 276, you're supposed to return lost property. Deuteronomy chapter 22. And the law immediately right after it, very similar to the one previously, oh, don't pretend not to have seen lost property to avoid the obligation to return it, which means this law was written by a six-year-old or for the six-year-old, seven-year-olds. That's one of my favorites right there. Number 583. Do not appoint as ruler over Israel one who comes from non-Israelites, which sounds very much like a law that we have in this land regarding our presidency, which I learned when I was in high school, and I was like, oh, shoot, I'm never going to be president. So I decided to go into the ministry. So that's how that happened, Um, because I was not born in this country. Now, as you take a look at all of these laws, all of these commandments, 613, and again, depending upon how you count or depending upon your particular tradition, there may be more, there may be less, but this is the traditional number of the things that we are all to follow in order to fulfill the purposes of God's teaching for us in this world. As you apply these laws in this world, as you live out into this real world with these commandments, guess what? Every now and then, you're going to run into a situation in which you can't really follow it all. There's going to be times and circumstances. <laughs> there are going to be t- times and circumstances when you're just not going to be able to do everything that the law commands, everything that's written down. This is actually one of my favorite ones. <laughs> So, (laughs) now, what this is, is the application of real-life diversity to written-down static laws and commandments. Let me give you an example of this. Law 39. You are not to leave a beast that has fallen down beneath its burden unaided. And the implication is if a beast, an animal somebody who owns livestock, happens to have trouble with that animal, your job is to help that animal, to help your neighbor. And this is conflated with other laws about helping your neighbor. But there's another law, 110. Do no work on the Sabbath. Now, these are legitimate laws, commandments that we are supposed to follow. However, the question is, for all of you who play Minecraft, that's for you. That was for you and Jack. Is Jack here? Yeah, so. For all the, all the rest of us adults have no idea what this is, but this is really cool for you. I know it is. So the question comes, what happens if your sheep falls into the pit on the Sabbath? Because if you try to pull a sheep out of a pit, I guarantee you that's a lot of work. But you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Real life, diverse situations 
with very direct commandments and laws. This reality emerges onto the scene as you do any set of laws, as you try to develop any sort of civic government, as you try to form any society, which means that these realities force us to have to choose. We're going to have to choose something. You either neglect one thing in order for the other, or you neglect that other thing in order for that. There's something that is going to have to be compromised. And so, we recognize that if there are 613 commandments, and we're supposed to follow all of them, we recognize that real-life situations demand for all of us some sort of ordering of the commandments, some sort of prioritization. Because if a beast falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, and there's a violation of a commandment, then guess what? We're going to have to figure out which one is greater. Which is the one that you observe, and which is the one that you don't observe? The classic example that I have given to my students over the years is you are in 1940s Germany, and you are hiding Jews in your home as a result of your kindness and compassion, perhaps a fulfillment of the law to love your neighbor. And the SS shows up at your door and knocks and says, are you hiding Jews in your home? This is one of the classic examples. It may not be the most perfect example, but it's a good example to try to flesh out this question. Do you lie or do you preserve life? Because the reality is when real life circumstances and situations meet commandments, it forces all of us to have to choose. It forces all of us to have to recognize there's something here that's actually more important than the other. Now, it doesn't mean the negation of that other commandment. It doesn't mean that that other commandment is unimportant or invalid. It just simply means in this circumstance, in this situation, as a result of this context, we're going to have to choose one over the other. Now, we'll get to a little bit of how that works out. The question When Jesus is asked the question, in the ordering of commandments, greater, lesser, greater, lesser, greater, lesser, what did Jesus say was the greatest? He starts off with commandment number seven, according to Maimonides in the ordering, to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. From Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. This is the greatest and most important commandment. In other words, no other commandment stacks up or ought to take precedence over this commandment, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. This is what's known as the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu. It's a, the most popular, perhaps, prayer in, in um, Judaism today that's said every morning, every night, a dedication of your heart and your soul. And then Jesus does this thing, which is really amazing. He says, I'm going to add to that, and this Number 26, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so we come to a teaching of Jesus that I think, and I will try to illuminate for you and explain, is brilliant and really, really central for those of us who are followers of Jesus, for how to live in the complexities and diversities of this world as we seek to live out all of these commandments. He takes the commandment to love God and to love neighbor, 
And he puts them together and he says, this is the greatest. In the ordering of all the commandments, if there was ever a situation or a circumstance in which you had to violate one commandment for the other one, here's the deal. You never violate the commandment to love God and to love people. That is the one that is precedent over all. Now, how does this work out? I think there are two levels to this in Jesus' teaching. And I threw that up there just for you Super Mario fans. For those. So let's do this graphic. I think this will be a lot easier. There are two levels that I think that are here at Jesus' teachings. The first one, we've talked about before about two years ago when we were doing our values series. So I'll just go over it very quickly, which is the idea of equalness. There, what Jesus is doing in this teaching is taking two things that may be separate in our minds and making them as equal, which is this. Neighbor is made in the image of God. Yes, This is one of the fundamental premises that is the story of Genesis. Guess what? Number two, you are also created in the image of God, which means that you are just like your neighbor. In the phraseology, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. There's two ways of thinking about that. You are to love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. That's one possible way of thinking about it. But the second way of thinking about it is this. You are to love your neighbor who is like you. In other words, Just like you are in the image of God, they too are in the image of God. And just like you love yourself, you should love them in the same way, under that same idea, under that same concept. And the reason why this is so important, the reason why this is so brilliant, is because you will never believe this. But back in the day, people used to categorize other people as good and bad. They would like put labels on people. These people are good and these people are bad. And the Romans were very good at dividing people as either good or as evil. I know it's very hard for us to think about today, but that's what they did back then. And so when Jesus talks about love your neighbor as yourself, he's starting to even the playing field. And that person, and uh, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time, that neighbor of yours, that enemy of yours, that other person that you're rubbing shoulders with, guess what? That person is an equal to you. Very much unlike the stratification or classification or the idea of different tiers, some people are different than others. And I love this quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who writes extensively about the evils of humanity. And he wrote this, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human In other words, all of us are equal. All of us are essentially the same. And so to love our neighbor as ourself is to recognize they might be doing evil, which makes it hard for us to love them. But guess what? That same line, that division of good and evil also exists in us. And just like we love ourselves, we should love them in the very same way. And so Jesus makes you and your neighbor equal. And he does a second level tier. He makes love of neighbor equal equal to the love of God. And you've heard this. I'm sure you've heard this in religious circles and Christian circles, whatever, that my first job is to love God, but then loving of neighbor, you know, that's, that's more difficult to do. And what Jesus is saying here in the prioritization and the conflating of these two commandments, there is no difference between loving God and loving neighbor. To love your neighbor is to love God. By the way, this is said in other places as well. First John 4.20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The idea and the concept That if you are to love God, if you truly are a seeker after loving God, you will, according to Jesus' ethics, 
love your neighbor, because there is no difference between the two. And this has resonated in all sorts of different ways. The Talmud, which is a very large body of Jewish work um, into the second and fourth centuries, there's some hints of this idea as well. The one who saves one life, it is as if that one had saved an entire world. And then one of my favorite quotes is, one who shames his neighbor in public has no share in the world to come. There's another way of saying it, that if you shame a neighbor in public, then it's as if you have spilled his blood. And so you are to treat other people in the very exact same way that you love yourself. And the way that you treat other people is the same way that you are treating God. To love your neighbor is to love God. Um, In Matthew chapter 6, verses 14, 15, there's this forgiveness concept. And we've heard there's a common idea of the unforgivable sin, which is blaspheme of the Holy Spirit, which is a whole different talk and teaching. But in Matthew chapter 6, there's this other passage where he says, if you cannot forgive your neighbor, then God cannot forgive you. There's an equality there. There's a recognition that loving of one's neighbor is almost a precondition to reconciling with God, which is also summed up in the golden rule. So, Level one, the first thing that Jesus is doing is he's equating things that we might think in our mind are separate. Loving of God is separate from loving our neighbor. No, loving God and loving our neighbor are actually one and the same. My neighbor and me, different people. No, we're all created in the image of God. We are actually all one and the same. So that's the first level, I think, of Jesus' teachings that I think we need to pay attention to. And again, this is a little bit of review from a teaching we did almost two years ago. Um, If you like that talk, I think it's online. But there's a second level here, which is the title of this talk, Greater and Lesser, which I think, again, I think is brilliant. Because to the equality mark, Jesus also adds and illuminates and gets on board with an idea of greater and lesser. Greater and lesser. Now, this idea is essentially this. We've talked about it a little bit at the beginning. 613 commandments. If there happens to be conflict in one then which one do you keep and which one do you violate? Which one do you make sure that you adhere to versus the one that it's okay to compromise in that context, in that particular situation? But there's another way of thinking about it, which is to say that to love God and to love your neighbor is the most central thing to every other commandment. That is what makes it great. That is what makes it the greatest commandment. Is because the love of God and the love of neighbor is the one that is inside, scrunched inside, every other commandment, all other 611 commandments. And if you don't like that image, here's one that I found that I thought some of you might appreciate. <laughs> now, some of you have, might recognize this idea that there are greater and lesser, and that these are all within one another. Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So there's the idea once again. Jesus is not advocating in the greater or lesser that you don't pay attention to the least of these commandments. Would you agree with this statement according to this passage? But the idea of greater and lesser commandments is that even the very least of these commandments is informed and fundamentally centered around loving God and loving your neighbor. 
Matthew chapter 23, later on, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and fruitfulness. Greater, lesser, the thing that's most important, the thing that informs all the others. But notice what he says here. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Greater and lesser doesn't mean I only love God and love people and forget all 611. No, greater and lesser means that to love God and to love people is the most central commandment that informs the activities and the interpretation of every single other commandment. By the way, that's not just Jesus, although it starts with him traditionally. Paul says this too. Romans 13, Galatians chapter 5. The entire Torah, the entire law, all of these commandments are summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, does Jesus give an example of this, of how to do this? Let's go back to our example here, Matthew chapter 12. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Do you hear the tension? Greater, lesser, here's a thing that you're supposed to do, but it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to violate the Sabbath. You're supposed to keep it holy. You're supposed to honor it. What are you supposed to do? And they're in this place in the synagogue of Capernaum. Here's a picture of it. And I love doing the little panorama. This is a little bit of what it looks like. And at the very end, who's that? Where is he? Is he here? So there's the synagogue. There he is in this particular place where the question of greater and lesser is essentially thrown in Jesus' face. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then he brings up this great illustration. Jesus said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? Does this sound familiar? Do you remember this illustration? This is the classic example. If a sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath... What's the answer to that question? According to even the traditional view, you violate the keeping of the Sabbath or you prioritize the pulling out of the animal. And then he says, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, loving God, loving your neighbor This is the core central idea. And these guys were wanting to prioritize sheep over people. And Jesus is saying, you have it backwards. Here's perhaps one of the ways to think about it. Loving God and loving your neighbor is the thing upon which everything hangs. Upon which we take the question of greater and lesser. When we're faced with a dilemma, when we're faced with a social context, when we're faced with some sort of dilemma, this is the thing that we have to ask in every decision, in every interpretation, in every application of every law. Is this loving God and is this loving the neighbor? So in the question, which is amazing to me, how many times I have heard you do not lie. And I would just like to challenge that idea. And in this situation, in Nazi Germany in the 1940s, there is a prioritization. And lying is not the prioritization. It's loving of neighbor, according to Jesus. By the way, 
This sounds very familiar if you know some more biblical history. Because this is exactly what the Hebrew midwives do to Pharaoh. They lie to Pharaoh in order to preserve life. This is what Rahab does in Joshua chapter 2. She lies to the people in order to save life. So this is illustrated even in those passages. So what are these two levels? Level number one, we are to see all of our neighbors as equal. And level number two, to see love as ultimately the greatest. This is the fundamental foundational teaching of Jesus. Now, really quickly, I would like to get to a couple things that I think have hindered us from thinking this way. This may seem perhaps simple or easy or understandable from Jesus, but the reality is for those of us who have been in Christianity or in religious circles for a while, we have brought with us all sorts of concepts or ideas that have hindered us from really operating and thinking in this particular way. One of them is simply this, are all sins equal? Have you heard that? That all sins are equal in the sight of God. And, and because all sins are equal, we, we, we're, it's difficult to make any sort of prioritization. It's, it's difficult for us to see anything greater or lesser than. And I found this graphic online, which I thought was very fascinating. The side view is that we see some people's sins as more worse than others. But the top view is God sees it from the sky. They're all equal and the same. So this idea that all sins are equal can hinder us sometimes from thinking that there are greater and lesser, that there's prioritization, that there's things that are more important or more central than others. There's another idea that comes around that's very much to that, which is the idea that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's a commandment. Of course we're supposed to keep it. It's what God says. But I, I would like to suggest to you that if this is how we believe in the commandments, and if this is how we are to work in the commandments, then this is really the reality. Sorry, mine closed until further notice. Because we've already recognized that in some situations, in some circumstances, it's impossible to do everything that God has called us to do. In other words, it forces us to think and engage with this world, with these commandments, in a way that is not simple. We can't shut off our minds and just simply say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. This is another way of applying what I would call moral rigidity. That this is what's right, this is what's wrong, and never shall we violate this. But I would also suggest to you that moral rigidity leads to legalism and is completely inadequate and incapable of love. And for us to simply say, God said it, that I believe it, that settles it, does not actually make the commandment, the greatest commandment, come alive in this world. There's another problem, and that's the problem of priorities. And the real problem with priorities that we have in Christianity and religious circles is the idea of priorness, things coming after one another in sequence. Many of you might recognize this, that the way in which we run our lives is God first, family second, church third, work fourth, and myself is last. And the way in which we often think about priorities is to put God first. And we say that all the time. We want to put God first. We want to put God first. Which sometimes means putting these other commandments aside because we're putting God first. Uh, sometimes it's looked at in this particular way. Jesus, other than you, which is where we get our acronym for joy, if you haven't heard that one before. The problem with the list of priorities is this. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible can a list of priorities be found regarding that. It doesn't exist. What does exist is the idea of greater and lesser commandments. 
Grant Howard in his book, Balancing Life Demands, writes this, and he writes a little bit extensively about this. It is not love God, then my neighbor. It is love God and my neighbor and myself, which means this is the central way in which it works, to love God, to love neighbor, and to love myself. This is the central command that influences everything else, just like the babushka dolls. Love God, love people. This is the greatest commandment. This is the thing that everything else hangs upon. And this should come as no surprise why love for us is the most central and critical value. It is the filter through which we ask every other moral command. So instead of all of these things, instead of that being the way in which we enter into this world, this is the way we enter into this world. You appreciate that, Marcus? That's for you. This is hard. This is painful. But I will tell you that greater and lesser commandments, demands that we wrestle, we don't turn off our brains, we engage our thinking, and we elevate our ethics. If love is the thing that influences everything else, then every other moral command, every other teaching, every other stipulation, every other precept, every other thing that we see in the Bible that God says, do this, we have to do this. We have to wrestle with that and say, how do we interpret this in such a way that loving God and loving people maintains its place of priority? And the reason why I say it has to elevate our ethics, because when we do this, something happens within us, some new moral, new ethic, the Jesus way emerges out from within us in a way that I think Abraham Lincoln calls the better angels of our nature. That we can do better than just simply apply moral command blindly to any situation. We have to wrestle. We have to ask the question, how does this love God and how does this love people? Here's what I would suggest are the two Potential ways in which we look at morals commandments in the Bible, all 613 of them. Moral rigidity, which is legalism. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Here's the law. And I was watching the news recently and somebody said, Jesus would never break the law. Yelling across. The other option is the disdain for the commandments. All these commandments, they're irrelevant. See, you can't do them all. So why do any of them? What's the third way? To bring all of the commandments with their validity, with their potency, with their desire to bring life to the fullest in this world, all under submission to the greatest commandment. So we don't throw out the lesser commandments as Jesus taught us. We bring it under submission to how does this love God and love people? So really quickly, what is the Jesus ethic? To see our neighbor as equal as ourselves, number two. To see our love of neighbor as equal to our love of God, number three. To bring all commands, morals, ethics under the authority of that love. To wrestle and engage with a variety of complicated realities thoughtfully and lovingly. And to exploit the better angels of our nature. And to let love be that. We have a variety of things in our world, a whole bunch of things in which religious people will yell at the TV screen and at news reporters and at politicians regarding Jesus said this, Jesus said this, Jesus said this. 
And I would just like to simply suggest to us that Jesus actually said, greater, lesser. You should honor the greater without violating the lesser. And the greatest commandment is to love God and to love people. And let's bring every moral imperative, every idea under submission of that love. And I know that as soon as I throw up a news sign, there's probably dozens of different situations that are happening in our world today in which this ethic, if we applied it, could radically change our perspective and radically change the outcomes for very, very real people in this world. So that's greater and lesser.